guys are always watching to try to figure out, okay, what athletes to add into the pool. And so I think anytime you can put yourself in a position to where, again, you're competing against an elite level competition and you're performing well at it, that's, that bodes well for you. Welcome to the Car Ride Home podcast. I am pumped today to be joined by Kat Osterman. Uh, Kat will go into, well, actually, we won't go into all of your awards because that would probably take up the entire podcast. Um, but really excited to to dive into um, it's pitching month with the Alliance Fast Pitch, and we are now coworkers with uh, with the Stars of Tomorrow. So we're gonna dive deep into that, but. Kat Osterman, obviously a, a name we all know in, in softball. I think you've won awards at, at every single level from gold medals to AU champions to professional level champions to NCAA player of the year, um, all of the above. But now the event director for the Stars of Tomorrow and also a coach with the, the Texas Bombers organization. So Kat, welcome to the Car Ride Home. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm excited. Me too. Me too. This is... Uh, Oh man. Like I told her, I told Kat, I was thought about wearing some maroon, but we'll keep it neutral. And I'm just going to make you stare at all the Aggie stuff behind my back for right now. So Kat, we call this a car ride home. We start every episode kind of the same way. Um, most important, what kind of music are we listening to in the car ride home? You know, I would like to nowadays it's podcasts a lot. Um, but if we're going to take it back a little bit, it'd be classic rock. I obviously rode with my parents quite a bit. Um, and so was listening to whatever they had on the radio. And then obviously over time when, um, I choose to it's classic rock or country, but I think if, uh, it's a card ride home, probably some classic rock to either a keep the mood or B, um, change the mood. Classic rock. Do you have a favorite artist? Well, I mean, if we're really going to go there, I absolutely love share, which is probably not something people would expect. Um, but you know, all the ACDC is always a good one as well. Interesting. Interesting. Well, the second most important question, your choice, what kind of food are we eating on the car ride home? All right. I've been thinking about this since I listened to Riker's podcast. Um, you know, the, the gifts or the images that are like, who keeps Arby's in business? This girl does. So we'll be stopping at Arby's for curly fries and a classic roast beef sandwich. I might sit this one out. I'm not going to lie. You. That's <laughs> <laughs> all right. Not for everyone, but yes, I keep Arby's in business. You know, somebody's got to do it. So there you go. We're uh, searching for NIL deals for Kat Osterman and Arby's right here. There you go. And then what is, we, you've probably spent a, a ton of time in the car, whether, especially as an athlete, um, even nowadays as a coach or, or even a mom as well. What is one of your most memorable car ride home? I like to think back when I'm younger, but I honestly, my dad and well, my mom and dad both, um, but usually we went separate. So my dad took me to pregame stuff. And then my mom brought my brothers up um, as opposed to my brothers, you know, being bored for an hour, hour and a half. Um, so the ride home was usually with my dad and good or bad. Um, for the most part, it was always a constructive conversation. Um, I remember one time um, he laid into me, but it wasn't performance-based. It was more of how I handled a situation, you know, just attitude and body language and things like that. Um, as a parent, I think it's fun now because 
Bracken got to watch me um, train for the 2020 Olympics. And so at the end of every bullpen, I would get in the car with Joey because he caught me for a while. Um, and if she was with us, you know, we'd talk out my bullpen. And I usually rate them on like a grading scale at school. So A plus to F, although I didn't really have F days. But um, so I'd get in the car and I'd be like, eh, today was a B. And then other days, you know, today was an A minus. I was really close to being really good. And so then she played softball for a brief stint and she still does it with volleyball. Um, she'll get in the car and she'll be like, mm, I think I had a B day. <laughs> and like, we'll talk about it and we'll be like, okay, why was it a B? And there were times where she would give herself a B and I was like, wait a minute, why did you give yourself a B? And she's like, well, I'm like, let's go back to the game and how it unfolded. And she's like, oh, okay, maybe it was a C plus. And I was like, okay, let's be honest with ourselves. So I think more recently, those conversations are good and not telling her she didn't do well, but like, let's look at the game. And if you want to give each aspect of the game, because obviously playing 10U, 11U Little League, she's hitting for herself too. So if you want to, you know, give each aspect a grade, that's fine. But um, it's just fun now to talk it through with her and have her self-analyze her sports and how she's playing and yeah, you know, talk her through it. Like, it's okay to be real with yourself. You don't have to go broadcast to the whole world if it wasn't a great game. Um but, you know, I am fortunate, I think, though, that I didn't have car ride homes with my dad where he just laid into me performance-based. Um, I really, truly cannot remember any time um, that, you know, losing a game really sent him over the edge. Now, flip side, I do remember a game that he called, he was called pitches for a while. And for whatever reason, I shook a pitch off and he called it again and I shook it off and he said, throw it. And I threw it and she hit it and we lost the game. And I think when we got in the car, I flipped and was like, I told you I didn't want to throw that. I knew she could hit it. And, da, 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 da. and um, you know, we both obviously learned from that situation, but um, I was just very fortunate that it was always a learning experience with him. And I think the other thing is the standard was always really, really high with him. Um, I have binders of emails and message board messages that my grandma printed off for a long, long time. And, you know, people would congratulate my dad on an outing I had once I moved up to 18U and obviously message boards and internet were like the new big thing. Oh, yeah. Um, but, uh, and you know, he just always was, well, yeah, she's still learning or yeah, we're getting better. And, um, so there was never an, I've arrived moment. So it was always striving just to continue to figure out how we could be better. And I think that was reflected with the way we had conversations on the way home. But, um, you know, win or lose, I do know we stopped at the gas station and I got a che uh, cherry Coke and chili cheese Fritos on the way home too. And then our conversation continued. <laughs> That's awesome. You mentioned dad. What was, uh, what was mom like? Cause I know both your parents were very active involved with your career. Yeah. Um, so my mom by nature is not extremely athletic. Um, she's the oldest of six. So she was helping raise brothers and sisters and working, um, in my, in my grandparents' uh, greenhouse for a long time when growing up. So she wasn't an athlete. And I honestly, I don't think Title IX had quite hit when she was in high school. And um, so the athletic side was something her and I didn't necessarily bond over. But the older I get, the more I realize she was just always the voice of the voice of reason, you know, the calm one. Um, I could pitch terrible. And she was always like, oh, you did such a great job. And obviously the older I got, especially in college, I'd call home after a game. And she'd be like, oh, great job. I'm like, mom, no, like you watched live stats. It was not very good. Let me talk to dad. Um, but you also just want that person sometimes when you don't want to talk to dad and have to rehash 
how awful you felt. Um, so she was just always the encourager, but also, you know, just so supportive with taking photos of myself, my teammates, um, you know, lugging my brothers everywhere. They didn't miss a game. Um, my poor brothers have seen, I think every field across the country probably. Um, but yeah, I mean, she was invested. She tried to catch once and reached out with her bare hand as the pitch came. So we kind of knocked, we cut her from, from trying to catch. (laughs) Um, but she just, she was very present. And I think that's the cool thing is no matter what, even though we didn't have as close of a connection as my dad and I did with it, she was always present and, um, you know, a funny story. And it, I think broke her heart almost is every time my teams got to championship games, um, my mom was not allowed to be there (laughs) because the one time she was there, we lost. And the first time we ever got there and she wasn't there, we won. And we were actually at gold nationals and one parent was driving home with me and one parent was flying and, um, they had the flight and everything. And we got to the championship game and my dad and I looked at my mom and I was like, sorry, mom, you gotta go. Like you gotta go. (laughs) And, um, she, uh, you know, she, went to the airport and I think she ran into another coach for one of the teams it was like, well, how'd it go? And she goes, I don't know. I have to fly home because I'm not allowed to be at championship games. So um, she was present and she was also well bought into the superstitions that um, allowed us to say, stay successful. That's, that's parts important too there. Kat, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned kind of your travel ball career a little bit in there. And now in today's world, you're, you're living it as a coach, but what did it look like? Even, what did that time of your life look like? So, um, you know, 14 to 18, what did like your individual workouts, your team practices, like your own training, what, what did that look like for you as a youth player? Yeah. So I got into it relatively late compared to everyone else. Um, my first year of travel ball, I believe was second year 12U. Um, I played my first year 12U with little league and learning how to pitch. Um, I had tried out for a team for first year, I think at the halfway mark, like after the fall. Um, but they had a full roster and they basically said, you know, we'll call you after the summer and you can come back to tryouts and we'd love to have you. So um, I played Little League Wait, for another semester make- or another. You didn't make your no, first team? I didn't. No, no. <laughs> um, there's also a story in there where I didn't, ma- I was the only one cut from Little League All-Stars, but that's a whole nother thing. So, Yeah. Um, so we, yeah, we went to a tryout. They pretty much had a full roster, obviously whatever they were looking for with this tryout, I didn't have at the time. Um, they did invite me back and then I made the Cypher Slammers. So I did one year of 12 year with them, two years of 14 U, um, and first year 16s all with that same team. So that's, you know, four years with a group of girls. Um, we're all from the same district, not necessarily the same schools. None of them went to my school. Um, but it was fun just to have a group of girls that, you know, we knew once or twice a week we were practicing. Um, if not, it was midweek practice and then tournaments on the weekends. Um, we obviously stayed local early on. There's enough tournaments here in Houston. Um, we traveled to Dallas on occasion, um, but mainly stayed in the Houston area. And then obviously when you get into the, the metro regionals, nationals, all of that, that at the time USA softball had, um, we would travel out of state, but um you know, I just remember looking at it. It was fun. I found something I truly loved. I was doing it with people who loved it just as much. Um, you know, 16, our first year, 16s, we got to go to Michigan for nationals and 
that was the first time we saw college coaches at games and, you know, eyes just like got super big. Um, that's the first time I saw Texas at a game. And I remember, um, one of our, one of our coaches, dads, um, we were basically coached by a bunch of dads, but it was kind of cool because each coach couldn't coach his own daughter, minus the fact my dad called pitches. Um, so everybody had to go talk to somebody else's daughter in order to, uh, you know, keep the sanity, so to speak. Um, but one of our other players, dads, you know, had gone up and talked to Texas and came back telling me that, that, you know, they were watching. And of course, at the time that was my dream school. So, um, it was really fun. But after that first year, year of 16U is kind of where my dad and I had to make a decision. Um, I wanted to keep playing. I loved the team I was playing on. Um, but even the coaches, well, once my dad approached them, they said, you know, she needs to go. She's at a different level. And we understand that you guys are going to want to go test the waters. And, um, you know, my dad was like, yeah, I want to move her up to 18 and under. I want her to be able to, to get hit around and have to learn and not be just dominating. Um, which I laugh because I also wasn't dominating for very long, but it was 16 U. I think my dad felt like I had found a groove, but he wanted me to be able to grow faster and not just, um, get comfortable and, so that's where um, I tried out for the Katie Cruisers for the first time. Um, well, the only time. Um, it was the only 18-year tryout I went to. We had like three or four lined up. And the second they said they called and said, hey, we want her, I looked at my dad and I said, oh, I'll go there. And he was like, wait a minute, we're supposed to try out. You know, we have these other. And I was like, no, I'm good. And, and part of the reason was the head coach's daughter was already committed to Texas. So I knew if I wanted to go to Texas, like they would be coming around that team. Um, but two, I think tryouts are still the same where they're like literally right after you get home from nationals. And I had gone to this tryout not having pitched for two weeks because I came home from nationals. I didn't pitch at all. And then my dad said, Hey, let's go to this tryout kind of on a whim. Cause we didn't know where when their tryout was at first. And I went and literally pitched at tryouts, not having practiced for at all for two weeks. Um, and so when I made it, I was like, cool, I can go back to resting again. Um, I don't want to have to keep trying to pitch to go to these other tryouts. Um, and then by the time season rolled around, um, the different part was all of our pitchers had quit. So here I am on an 18U team and I'm literally like not the only good arm, the only arm. Um, the only other kind of arm we had was a girl who pitched for her high school, but she was going to college as a third baseman and a hitter. So she wasn't pitching for us in travel ball. Um, so yeah, I got thrown in the fire and had to learn really, really quick. Um, I do like that that part of the game's evolved and it's no longer like one man shows all the time. Um, their staffs. Um, but, you know, I think the biggest piece that I remember of travel ball, and this went even into my 18 and under years, is like we practiced. A, I don't want to say a lot, but we practiced. Um, <clears throat> we were probably one of the first teams, at least in Texas, that had girls from all over. So we had a couple from Dallas. We had one or two from Louisiana, Houston, um, Central Texas. So we would arrange practices and everyone would come down for the weekend. Um, but it wasn't just play, 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 play. It was, you know, let's learn to, how to work with each other. Um, you know, we would scrimmage each other sometimes to where, you know, learning which pitchers, um, obviously not my first year, but the years after when we had other pitchers, like which pitchers matched up well together, um, what everybody has. And then on top of it, we became such a tight knit group. Those of us that did live um, within a certain radius of Katie, like, I would go to hang out with one of them and we'd walk, we'd end up driving or walking over to somebody else's house. And next thing you know, there's like five or six of us at the ballpark, just kind of playing around. Um, and then, you know, you call a couple others and it's like, we're having an impromptu semi-practice, but all on our own 
Um, and so it was just fun to <clears throat> be able to grow up with those girls. And, um, you know, so really I had two travel teams my whole life. Um, the Cypher Slammers were the start and then the Katie Cruisers for the last uh, three years. Um, picked up a couple of times with some other teams just to get some more games in on weekends that we weren't having practice or playing. But, um, you know, I think the biggest thing was just the camaraderie piece and like, you know, it was pride to be a team that, that was so well knit, but at the same time, um, you know, so good. I think the cruisers, I mean, almost everybody went to a power five. Well, almost everyone went D one, a couple, um, couple went to JUCOs first um and then but I think almost everybody eventually was at a power five and was competing at the highest level um you know I could go down the list but you have Lindsay Gardner um Jessica Allister who's at Stanford now Aya McMichael who was at Mississippi State she's a coaching with our junior national team now um let's see who's another name that you guys would I mean we sent them everywhere um, at Texas, there were six of us alone that ended up there. Um, Lindsay Gardner, me, Tiffany Anders, Sarah Wyzak, Tina Butel, and then um, Tiffany Anders, who played her first two years there. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think the other piece was it, it was competitive. I mean, we lived for it. We didn't just show up to play. It was like we lived for the weekends. And um, when we got to go outside of the state, especially at 18U and, you know, it's, I'm going to date myself for anyone in California, but it was, it was Gordon Panthers. It was SoCal athletics and it was uh Batbuster tanning. <laughs> I mean, those were the three, the three big ones. And then I think right after that was uh, actually Batbusters Tyrone who um, was in the final three of nationals with us one year. So, I mean, when we got to play those teams, it was a big deal. Um, and, you know, it, it obviously prepared us. We, we won two, two gold national championships and we're the first non-California team to win it. Um, so um, that part was fun. And, and that's the stuff we took pride in is we wanted to be able to say, you know, softball was just as good um, and growing in Texas. Well, and today we look at that and that is the case across the country too. So that, that's cool. I didn't realize you guys were the, the first ones. I do remember the Katie Cruisers and I remember a lot of those names that, that you just said. You're, you're in it now. You're, you're in the travel ball world. Um, and you're out there, you're coaching on the weekends, you're working with these athletes. You might've already mentioned this a little bit, but what do you think is one of the biggest differences that you're seeing? Um, good, bad, and different. Like what are some of the biggest differences? I think that, well, I think one is like the development process and it's not every org across the board. Don't get me wrong. Cause there are organizations that truly are dedicated to developing their athletes. But if we're going to develop, we have to practice and we have to be able to put them in situations to where both mentally and physically they're learning the game. And it's not just a learning experience when it's only a failure in an actual game. Um, so I think that's a huge difference is it's become a, a money-making thing to have tournaments all the time. And so everyone goes and plays in tournaments all the time. And while playing is great, if you don't practice what you're trying to perform with, are you really getting better? Um, and so I think that's the, the one piece is that we just play a lot more, um, than we did, um, when I was growing up in all age groups, like even 18 U. I mean, I think we played maybe four tournaments a summer, um, maybe five. I mean, and granted there might've been friendlies or something in there where we practiced on Saturday and scrimmaged somebody on Sunday, but, um, that didn't count for us as like tournaments. 
because again, in the friendlies, you can control the scrimmage and learning opportunities and things like that. So, um, you know, I just remember we used to win the first qualifier of the year and then we didn't have to go play in all these qualifiers and we just stayed home and practiced and we played Colorado and nationals and usually maybe one or two other tournaments. So, um, it allowed us time to be able to, to develop, but at the same time, kind of have a life, um, you know, even as a travel coach right now, summer hits and you, you can't make plans. You're just go, go, go. And I look back and I'm like, man, I was, you know, my senior summer, I was with the national team for the first time. So that was different. But the summers before that, I mean, we drove to Colorado and made it a vacation one year. Um, my mom, dad and I drove to Tennessee and made it a vacation one year. Um, so it's like you had time to do other things. And so I think, well, yes, um, the goal and the ability to get to college is, I don't want to say more prevalent, but obviously more popular. And now with social media and internet and this and that and the other, you know, all the opportunities out there where you and I growing up, it's not like you could get on social media and see like who's committed who, like you had to wait till some softball magazine came out to see who committed where. Um, but I have, my, my mom has those magazines. That's the only reason I can reference those. Um, but you know, nowadays it's that dream is great, but are we really preparing them for that wholeheartedly? Or are we just assuming that play, play, play is going to prepare them? I mean, you get to college and the hardest part, and you can attest to it is once you get to your first 20 hour week and you realize what 20 hours really means when there's no games, you've never practiced that hard in your life. Um, and that's the kind of the big eye opener is all of a sudden you're on the softball field for four hours and you had no clue what the four hours could look like on a softball field. Um, and I think we can prepare them a little bit better for that, but you know, I think the competition level has increased, like you said, across the country. And so that's the fun part to see is, you know, you no longer can take any team for granted, um, where growing up, there were certain parts of the country that weren't quite caught up yet. And now everyone is, is catching up and everyone can put together an elite team or teams in some form to where now, um, there's nobody that's a pushover. Did you know less than 10% of high school softball players go on to play college softball? The recruiting process can be hard and confusing. That's why the Alliance Fast Pitch partnered with the best in the recruiting game, NCSA. NCSA has been a leader in college athlete recruiting for over 20 years and has helped more than 250,000 student athletes make commitments to their college choice. NCSA provides innovative tools to help athletes through online education and performance training expert recruiting guidance from former college softball coaches who've actually been there, data-driven college, college matching tools, and access to more college softball coaches than any other college recruiting service. And get this, Alliance members get 50% off NCSA Team Edition and NCSA services. Yes, 50% off all recruiting services and products from NCSA just for being an Alliance member. And trust me, I've asked. The Alliance is the only partner with this 50% off discount for our members. Take advantage of this Alliance membership benefit. Get the edge on recruiting. To see what NCSA has to offer, visit thealliancefastpitch.com, click on partners, and find NCSA. NCSA, the smart way for coaches, clubs, and athletes to win at college recruiting. You know, it's uh, there's so many things, I, I, and I agree with you, by the way, and I had a really interesting conversation with, um, with Lindsay Leftwich and talking about when she gets kids on campus and practicing, and not only have they not gone through a 20 hour week of practice, but then even like being coached at practice too. And some of the mindset, I thought that was, was really interesting in that aspect. One of the things, and I guess I know this too, because I, I've 
played against you for years at, at various levels. And I know the relationship that you've had with your catchers at the college level, professional level, national team level. Is, is that important even at the youth level? Is that something that you worked at or like you're even talking to your pitchers now of building that, that connection with your catcher? Yeah. Um, you know, I don't think I knew it at the time, but at the youth level or in travel ball, you know, my dad made it at a point that if we were going to go to practice early and throw, um, he let my catcher's parents know too. And they might not have been there for the whole hour. Like I might've thrown with my dad for the first half hour, but the last part when I was at full pitch, they showed up and caught. Um, occasionally they came for the whole hour. Um, I remember too, spending weekends with my catchers, like even if, if they didn't live close, super close to me, I mean, Houston's massive an hour and you're still within our city limits or whatever. So, um, but I would go, you know, I'd go spend a weekend up in spring with my catcher. We'd work, you know, we'd obviously throw a bullpen once or once a day, um, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, but then I'd hang out with her and get to know her and hang out with their family. Um, I did the same with Jessica Allister. I spent a weekend in Nacogdoches. Um, when her parents were working at SFA. Um, but we went out there, I, you know, we threw, we played flashlight tag at some amazing playground park thing that I've never seen again in my life. But in my head, it's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Um, but I would spend weekends getting to know them and hanging out with them. So that way we had that, um, that relationship, but just knowing each other. I mean, mm-hmm. I think at a young age, I probably knew lack of better term, I wasn't normal. Like I was very serious and driven to do what I wanted to do and hard headed and stubborn. Um, so I think being able to hang out with my catchers and them learn me, but also me learn them. Um, you know, anyone who knows, well, I shouldn't say that Jessica Allister's probably way intense as a coach, but as a catcher, she was very, I don't want to say laid back, but just calm. Like, so she could come out to me and just talk normal. And it was like, there was also a massive respect um, piece with her obviously being one older, but two, just everything she had accomplished. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's huge because your catcher has to know how you operate. You have to know how they operate because if they can call time and come talk to you, as opposed to a coach coming out, um, cause nine times out of 10, then I find myself sometimes wanting to say the obvious, but like a coach coming out most of the time is let's throw a strike. Well, no, duh. We can't walk her. Well, again, no, duh. Uh, you know, you're not hitting your spots. I'm pretty sure she already knows that, which is why there's probably three people on base and you're out here. Um, so when a catcher can come out and talk through it first, a lot of times helps a pitcher get, get things rolling again, in my opinion. Um, and yeah, you know, I benefited in, in college. Um, I had Marlo Hanks my first two years and then Megan Willis, who I kept literally went and begged to come back and play pro with me, um, for another six years. Um, so or seven, I think we had together. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a huge piece that as a pitcher, if you can develop that and you can, you can be, I, we, I, I say be the initiator, not like my catchers ever had resistance to it, but being the initiator allows your catcher to drop the guard and be like, all right, we're going to work together then. And then both sides, you know, when I miss a pitch, they can say, no, like you missed it. And there were times that I asked Megan how a pitch was and she told me it didn't move. And I wanted to look at her like she had 10 heads, but I'm like, okay, she's back there. And there's no reason for her to tell me it didn't move if it didn't. Um, And so, you know, you continue to work. And there's times where I had to tell a catcher, like, I need you to, I need you to just stick this more or, Hey, can we, in the case of Megan, Hey, can you quit talking? And like, let's just focus and go. Um, (laughs) 
get this done with. And, you know, you can have those conversations when there's respect on both sides because you've built that relationship. Absolutely. You, uh, you said something, I wasn't normal, which is really a, a good thing. When did you, especially as a youth athlete, when did you recognize that? And then when did you, I guess, finally embrace that as well? Well, I think I, I think I finally recognized it probably, probably about 14. Like I just, I lived for sports. Um, I lived for playing them. Um, and I always did everything with the intention to be as good as I could, could at it. So even when I was playing goalie and soccer, which I absolutely hated, like they would have to bribe me to stay in goal. Like I would start the game there and then I'd beg to go do something else in the second half. And they'd be like, Oh, it's a one, it's a one goal game. We need you to stay in. Like you're really good. But even then I was taking goalie lessons to be really good at it. Kind of like you do pitching lessons. So it's like, I was going for a half hour before team practice to work on this skill. Um, even though I didn't like it. So it's like, I was all in, in whatever I was doing all the time. And I think I realized that, um, pretty early on. And then when I fell in love with pitching, um, which I started at 11 and don't get me wrong, I loved it, but you know, you're throwing fastballs, change ups. It's, it is what it is. And, um, but once I started seeing some success with pitching and realizing, you know, watching the older girls, like what all pitching can entail, I wanted to be good at all of it. And so then I went all in and, and that's when, you know, I knew when people didn't understand like why I had to go home and practice pitching, um, and I couldn't just, you know, skip a day. That's when I knew I was different and I was okay putting that ahead of, you know, birthday parties or, you know, school games for other teams that I'm not part of that kind of thing. Um, so 14 is when I noticed it. And then I think, you know, 15, 16, I really embraced it. I didn't care at that point. I knew obviously college was a thought in my mind. Now, um, that whole piece was getting ready to unfold, and so that's when I was like, you know what, I'm going all in because I, I want to check off all these these goals I have and I'm going to do what it takes. And, you know, I have high school friends that now that we talk, they were like, man, we thought you were crazy, but now we understand it. Um, and I, I didn't I didn't really care if people thought I was crazy. Um, thankfully, I did have friends that even though they thought I was crazy, they embraced it with me. And, you know, high school, I'd go hang out and my dad would say, you have to be home by whatever time. And they'd make sure I got home at that time and they'd go back to wherever they were hanging out and, you know. I hung out long enough and then had other things to do the next day. So, um, you know, I, I didn't think it was, I didn't think it wasn't normal, I guess at the time. Um, I knew it was different. I should say that. Um, but I also knew that my goals were different. Um, you know, I didn't have friends other than with the, in on my travel team that were talking about playing sports in college. Um, everyone at the high school, you know, was doing other things. So, um, yeah, I think it, it paid off. And then obviously career unfolded as we went that gave me other carrots dangling in front to continue to be all in all the time for. All in all the time. And yeah, Kat, you said it lightly. I think it did pay off. <laughs> By the way, I think uh, I think it, it, it worked out pretty well there. I, you know, I just, um, it's pitching month. So we I've talked to a couple different pitching coaches and we were talking about in today's world, there's not, a Kat Osterman. There's not, I know like even in my day, it was, it was you, it was Monica, it was Jenny. Um, I still think like freaking Katie Burkhart was one of the toughest pitchers, but we aren't seeing that dominance as much and going more, we're building staffs, um, especially at the college level. We're seeing that. I don't, 
I mean, I'm talking to somebody that was the ace and that was uh, just, you know, somebody that a, a entire team could get behind and ride. From your perspective, why do you think that's changed? And, and will we see another Kat Osterman, Monica Abbott type? You know, I think the biggest thing that changed is, and I, I can only speak from how I learned and how I teach, is I don't think... I don't think pitchers and their parents are approaching things to master to master pitches. I think we're trying to learn pitches. So that's where, and I'm sure if you've heard it, people will come and say like, I have five, six, eight pitches, but then you ask them to throw each one 10 times and maybe three of them hit above 50%. Well, I personally wouldn't say I have a pitch if I can't throw it at any point in time to whatever locations it's supposed to go to. Um, and I think that's how I approach pitching was, you know, I, I learned a little bit backwards, learned my fastball, my change up, but then I learned a rise ball first, which was the hardest pitch to learn. I threw people like gawk at me, but I threw it in my driveway for nine months before I ever tried to throw it in a game. Because in our mind, why would you go try to throw in the game if it's not spinning correct? If you don't know where it's going and you don't know how to use it effectively yet. Um, so you know, then I added a rise ball and really by accident, um, we were throwing a high fastball and I don't remember if I couldn't get it high enough or what it was. Um, but this was a point my dad said, okay, well, you know, let's try your rise ball. Let's see. And I was like, are you serious? And he's like, yeah, let's see what it does. And so then we went ahead because both of us had confidence that I could at least spin it right. It was going to move and I could spot it at least decently well that it was worth trying to throw in a game. And I think, I see pitchers learn a pitch and I'm like, how long have you been throwing this? And they're like, oh, a month. And I'm like, you think your body knows what to do in a month's time, which I'm sure we haven't thrown 31 days in a row of just this pitch. And really it takes your body. I think it's like 10,000 reps to, to master something. Um, so I think we, as coaches started appeasing the boredom that kids and parents were getting because their kids weren't learning all these pitches at a certain rate where really you should master one, then let's start on another, master that one, and then start on another. Um, and to be honest, so many, you talk about the greats and, you know, Finch had a great changeup, a good rise ball, and had a really good screwball. Now, don't get me wrong, she could also throw a curve, and later in her career added a drop, but she had three really freaking good pitches that she threw. I had a rise ball and a drop ball, mainly known for my drop ball, um, and a curveball. That was really good. Again, three pitches. Um, you know, Monica Abbott, speed that she could locate well, a rise ball, and then she then she added, when she added her changeup, it was a difference maker. But so you're talking about pitchers that didn't sit there and say they lived on every single pitch. I mean, you talked about it. We faced off 800 times. Like, you probably saw majority curveballs and dropballs, literally. So I probably threw 80%, 90% of two, like two pitches most of the time to you guys. I didn't have to have five in order to be successful. And I think that's the thing. You're like a, a jack of all trades, master of none. And a lot of the greats that people talk about, you know, Taryn Moat, first thing that comes to mind, change up, screwball, yep. two. Alicia Hollowell, drop ball, change up, two. Like, so it's being able to master two and having a really good third probably and a fourth maybe as you go in time. But I think we just try to learn so much when they're one, developing their bodies still, but two, then you try to throw all of that in because we don't want to get hit. We don't want our 
pitcher to, to see failure. So we're going to try to throw all these pitches as opposed to, okay, instead of that, like if this pitch gets hit, let's learn how to spot it better. Let's learn how to spin it better. Does it need more speed? Does it need to be slower if it's an off speed? Um, so I think we just tried to, everyone tries to learn everything. Um, I would love at some point to get a 16 year old pitcher who comes to me and is like, Oh, I throw a changeup. I, I have one actually, I shouldn't say that. I have one that just committed to Illinois with the bombers. She primarily throws a drop and a changeup and is working on some other things to be able to offset. But again, 80% of the pitches in the game, 90% are drops or changes. And it's like, put your, she's really put your pitching coach, put your pitching coach hat on when, yeah. when is mastery. So when can I, if I, if I've been working on it, is it a certain amount of time? Is it, Hey, in my bullpens, the, the ball's doing this. Like when is mastery and when, when can I go ahead and implement that in a game? So I think mastery comes when, um, one, you have body feel, like you can feel how it snaps off. You can feel that your body's in line to the inside corner, outside corner. Um, if we're talking rise ball, for instance, you feel your body underneath it and when it's not. Um, so I'll say body feel, which that time can, some people can get that quicker than others. And then I'll say to measure if you really, like if you have body feel, Okay, now let's measure how well are you really throwing it. So again, I'm going to go on rise ball just because that's what I learned first. My dad and I would throw sets of 10 at the end of practice. And he would be like, okay, rise ball inside, um, you know, sternum to chin height. And I would have to hit somewhere between six or more. Um, and again, that, that this percentage changes with age because obviously the older you get, the better your percentage should be but I would have to hit six or more in order for it to be a passing day. And then we looked and in a week I needed to pass, you know, at least 75, 80% of my bullpens in order for him to think, okay, I have it mastered. Um, and so that's where we did, we did set to 10 all the time of, okay, throw the same pit. Can you, can you replicate the same pitch 60 to 80% of the time? And if I, once I could, then, okay, let's go ahead and throw it in the game. So interesting. It's uh, now you're calling pitches too. So is this a time now in the fall? Like, are you ever calling me? Like you mentioned it about failure and just learning to throw that pitch. And sometimes you have to experience failure. Are you calling games without giving everything away? I guess. <laughs> are you calling games that way where you're not necessarily pitching or calling pitches to the outcome of the game, but more so for the development of that pitcher. Um, sometimes. Yeah. If a pitcher is working on a certain pitch and the game gives us an opportunity to throw it in, um, then I will. And a lot of times um, my, my pitchers will hear me. I'll call a pitch knowing they may not really want it. And I'll say, let me know. Like, I think it's a time we can throw it in. And if you don't, then shake me off because again, I don't want them to throw something they're not convicted in. Um, but most of the time they roll, they, you know, they roll with it and they're like, okay. Um, the kid I was telling you about who goes primarily drops, um, there was a opportunity in our last tournament. We had thrown a couple drops change kid was fouling things off. And in my head, I was like, man, you know, if we can throw a good curve, we might get her. Cause she thinks everything's going to tail down. And even though it was an O2 or a one, two count, not really where we want to stay somewhere lateral. Um, I called it, she threw it and we, we got her looking because again, she probably thought it was going to fall off the table because every other pitch had up until that point. Um, and you know, I came in and I talked to my pitcher about why we threw it and she was like, Oh, I didn't think of it that way. I just thought it was something different. 
but it got her mind and she goes, but now I understand what you're talking about. Um, so I tried, I do try to pitch to some development when the game gives us the opportunity. Um, and if I know they're working on a pitch, like I have one that's working on trying to get her change it back. And so, yeah, I will throw it. And if it's in the dirt, I don't care. I throw it again. Um, because it is the fall. And if we're not at some point forcing the issue with real live hitters, um, you're never, you're not getting yourself ready because so many people, you can be a bullpen all American balls can go exactly where you want them to. And you hope that translates to the game, but sometimes with adrenaline and emotions and now a live hitter, you focus on the umpire, you name all the things that aren't in our control. Um, if you don't try it in that, in that environment, it's never, we're never going to actually master it um, on both sides of the, the training. What do you do in a situation with that? Because the fall is so important in recruiting. And is that a conversation maybe that the coach should have with college coaches? Like, Hey, my pitcher is working on this. So you might see her, you know, throw more changeups in this game and here's why, or yeah. Like how does that affect? Cause I, I can see parents and kids, but like, but this fall is my only chance to get recruited and there's so many coaches out there. So how would you answer and handle that one? I think the first thing I go to is with the parents and coaches is I'm not going to quit calling your best pitches. So a college is still going to be able to see your best pitches. Um, but yes, if there's an opportunity and let's say, um, you know, let's say I have a kid that's working on a changeup, or maybe we're working on a drop that we haven't really thrown and the game's giving us the opportunity in between um, innings when we are go on offense. Sometimes I'll go tell a college coach like, hey, have you seen enough? We're going to start working on drop ball. It's not her best pitch, but um, just wanted you to know in case, you know, you wonder why all of a sudden she's not getting barreled up, but now she is. Um, we're really working on this, you know, A, B or C. Um, so I, a lot of times will have conversations, um, with coaches either in game, or if I know they're coming before the game, like, Hey, this pitch has been really working. We're going to throw it plenty, but I'm also going to be forcing, you know, change-ups and rise balls through the zone today. So, um, just so for you to look at, because too, they want to know, they want to know that a kid is still working to get better. Um, and they also want to know how that kid is working to get better. And so to be able to verbalize that for them and help guide them when they do that, because, you know, you could say they could call it on their own, but they don't really know when to add it in. And next thing you know, we're throwing change-ups in counts where we're putting them on time and things like that. So, um, you know, I don't think it ever hurts your recruiting to show you're developing. Um, but again, you don't go from what your bread and butter is, which is what's going to get you recruited anyways. For sure. What is it like? I was, uh, I was watching one of your games a couple of weeks ago and I watch you go out to the mound. And after that game, I see like little girls like, that's Kat Osterman. So, cause at the end of the day, you're their pitching coach, but at the same time, like myself and people in the stands are seeing this is one of the greatest pitchers of all time, walking out there to talk to a 16, 17 year old pitcher. What, what is that transition? Is it hard sometimes? Has that changed over time? Um, talk to me a little bit about that whole transition from being a pitcher to, to now being the pitching coach. Yeah. Um, I think personally the transition was semi easy. I always knew I wanted to coach. So I approached everything as a learning, like from the learning perspective to work, to be able to reteach. Um, but the, the person personality piece, um, I think because I feel like I established a good relationship with them and, and I do, I have a great relationship with all my pitchers, but I think I forget that in their eyes, I still, and Kat, who was, you know, three years ago on the mound and two years ago on a mound in Tokyo where they were watching it on TV. Like that's, 
I mean, I don't even want to say unfortunately, that was just part of my normal life to where when I step off, you know, here I am cat, the coach or whatever it is, but in their eyes, there's still that, that, that reverence, so to speak, I guess. Um, so sometimes when I go out to the mound, you know, the eyes are big and, and I know exactly, sometimes I think they think I'm coming to chew them out and I have rarely ever gone to the mound and, and chewed someone out. Um, I had one pitcher in my whole career so far that that's just what somehow to flip the switch on her. And I hated doing it. But every time I came out, I was like, all right, that's the only way your brain like flips to compete mode is when um, the sternness comes out. Um, but a lot of times I go out there and I share something that something, a similar situation from my career, whether it was travel ball, college, you know, one time I had a pitcher give up two home runs in an inning and I walked out, I said, Hey, I've done it twice where I've given up three. Do you want to try to do that? And she like looked at me and I was like, it all happens. It happens to all of us. Like take a deep breath. Let's, let's figure out how we're going to get through this. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's, it's different because I put on my coach hat and just totally consider myself on the same page as every other coach that's out there on the field. Um, but I have to forget that with these athletes, um, there's a, there's another level because they've grown up watching me do what they're trying to do. Um, which they think, don't get me wrong. They tell me all the time how cool it is that, you know, I'm there and I'm helping them through it. And, um, I think sometimes occasionally they'll be like, we kind of forget sometimes until we go to these, you know, we play so, so many against the same people that we go to tournaments in Texas. It's not as a big deal that I'm at the park anymore, but we go to Florida and it's completely different. Um, because these teams haven't seen me out at the park before. And um, our kids are like, oh, we kind of forgot. And I was like, yeah, it's okay. Like, it's okay. Um, but I think the cool thing is they know, I really think the biggest thing for them is when they, when I can go out and share failure with them, it's probably the easiest way to relate with them. Um, I always say, I think there's a mis, there's a misconception that anyone who's elite at what they've done has never failed. And it's like, we've all failed and there's a plenty of failure. It, our levels of failure may be a little different. They may not be. Um, they just didn't happen in, in crucial situations or things like that. But there is failure for all of us to relate to and help coach a kid through. Um, just because I was able to achieve a different level of success does not mean along the way there was not failure that mirrors what their child's going through. That's so bad. That's when you said that, uh, the comment about the giving up the three home runs in my head, I'm like, you did like, so it, it humanizes that aspect of it too. I'm sure for them, we, uh, another big like conversation has been around data. And in fact, uh, Riker actually even referenced, uh, what your data or some of your data, but you played in an era where there wasn't access to all of this data. So how have, even as a pitching coach, how have you evolved around this concept of data? And do you think it would have impacted your game at all, good or bad? Um, so I'll be honest, I haven't fully embraced data, not because I don't believe in it. Um, it's just more of figuring out what's the most accurate and what measurables are really playing a part. Um, because like, I know we capture spin rate, okay, but where does spin rate versus spin efficiency come into play when we're talking about movement? Um, and I will say I learned this on my own, which if we had data or technology back when I was playing, I might've been able to learn it sooner or everyone would have understood it sooner is where's the threshold where you throw through your spin. 
Um, you know, I could have probably thrown 65, 66 consistently, but my drop ball didn't drop when I threw that hard. So I learned how to live at 62 to 64 because that's where my pitches moved the best. Um, and I think I joke all the time. I would love to get in pitching shape again, just to throw on all this technology to figure out, um, like, how did I figure that threshold out? And what are the numbers at that threshold? Um, mm -hmm. To where, you know, a drop ball drops a lot instead of it being 65 and looking like a flat fastball. Um, so I'm in, I, I want to learn more about it, to be honest, because I think there are pitchers that can throw 65 plus and still make a ball move. Um, now, granted, is it the same movement pattern? Um, as someone who probably throws 62 to 64, I'm going to guess probably not, but what is it that makes all these things successful? Um, so I, but I think, you know, I like it. I think we get very much caught up in speed. Um, and that's where I'm, I want to learn like efficiency versus spin rate. How does all that affect each other? Um, because I do, I think every pitcher has a threshold where, Yes, you could throw harder, but is it beneficial for you? Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think we had a, I think it's the striker gun um, out at a tournament once. And one of my pitchers was so excited. She hit, I think she hit 68 or 69. And I was like, cool. But do you notice that when you hit that speed, you were like four to 500 revolutions less on the spin rate? And she was like, oh, I was like, which means it probably didn't move as much. Um and I think sometimes they don't think about the spin and the spin efficiency. They're just thinking speed because that's what we talk about all the time. And that's like kind of the cool, sexy thing to, to brag about. But it's like, I would rather have 64 and you tell me your ball spins at some, I don't even know what the highest caliber is, 2000 revolutions or 2500 or whatever it is. Um, because to me, that means, okay, the, the break is going to be monumental. See, we... We don't know that. And I always think you're one of the perfect examples to be just facing you in exactly what you said. You didn't overpower with speed, but that ball moved like no other. So I think you need to get back in pitching shape so that we can have benchmarks of data. I think all of you should come back just to start giving us some benchmarks and comparisons. So I'm going to start a movement here that, that you have to do it. I'll work on that for you. <laughs> I think it'd be so fun just to, to have those measurements. Well, what are you doing right now? Let's go. How long would it take you to get into pitching shape that you'd feel comfortable with to get the data? I don't know. I, I mean, to be honest, probably it's not like I have to go in a game. I just have to throw data. So probably three or four weeks, maybe we'll see. You've got time. I'll work on it. I think December, here we go. Kat Osterman coming back. <laughs> okay. So speaking of data and one of the things we are keeping you busy with, um, is your new role with us, with the Alliance as, as our camp director for event director for stars of tomorrow. And I loved it. Cause right away you're like, Hey, I, I want to be a part of this. So can you explain in, in your mind and, and you were part of our stars of tomorrow games, um, the end event last year that we did with athletes unlimited. So can you explain just, your passion for it and why, why it's something that, or why you are excited about the stars of tomorrow. I think I was so excited about it. One, because athletes unlimited was a new, a new movement in professional sports. So the way athletes unlimited go goes, um, no one had ever seen it before. 
And so not only is that new, but now you're trying to introduce these athletes to that model. Um, and it's so funny because everyone wants to be like, oh, it's such a selfish model because you into like you get individual points. I'm like, okay, yes, but you get more points as a team for winning innings and winning games if you look at the whole scoring system. Um, so I thought one, it was a really cool opportunity for our athletes um, in the alliance to be able to experience something new. It's not just your traditional all-star game. Like here, everyone gets a, a jersey, everyone gets to go play. At the end, there might be an MVP, but that's about it. Maybe bragging rights for East, West, North, South, Red, Blue, whatever your, you know your divisions are. But this is one, you get to go play with some incredible athletes and against incredible athletes, more than just two teams. Um, but at the same time, now, if you're a stud athlete, you can perform to where you get individual points and affect your team's performance. And now we get to see how do you impact a team? Um, of course, you know, we don't do the drafting um, or at least year one, we didn't, I would love if we could figure out how we can make that happen, but um, that's a whole different component. But these athletes get to now understand a little bit of athletes unlimited, but I just think it's a really cool experience to be able to go play in a different environment. That's not just your typical play game win you know, um, and, and that's that. Cause you know, you could technically be the losing team, but let's say, you know, for however many innings you out, you, you held on to the lead, you know, you can win for five or six innings and then lose the game in the seventh inning and still get a good number of points. Um, so if you're a pitcher and let's say your team didn't score till the fifth, but you kept the other team scoreless, well, you guys get five innings worth of points. If you lose in the seventh, you still got at least 50 points. Um, and so, you know, how do you as a player impact your team's success as well? Um, but I think it's really cool because we pick those team, we pick those girls to come to the final event based on their data and their, their performance at the, at the ID camps that we're having. And so, you know, you're really trying to get the best of the best to be able to go there and have the top 60 kids in each class be able to play and compete at the highest level. And again, another opportunity for you to compete again, more than one team, but with some really good athletes to where now you're comparing yourself apples to apples because it's, it's the top 60, like everyone's data, I'm going to assume is pretty similar in certain areas to be able to make it, um, to that event. And I just, I loved my experience with athlete, um, athletes unlimited. So when you were bringing that to, um, the athletes of Alliance, it, it, to me, it was a no brainer to try to jump in and figure out how I could help and, um, I'm super excited to be to heading that up for you guys because, you know, it is, it's an event that I really think could be a really cool experience for athletes year in and year out. You know, if you go the first year and let's say you finish sixth, well, can you go the next year and better yourself? Um, or if you win it, can you come back and repeat? I mean, it's really hard to do. Um, so, you know, I think in Athletes Unlimited, there's only a girl in lacrosse that's repeated. Everyone else has not repeated as a champion. Um, so it's, it's really cool environment to come back and continue to push yourself in. Um, but I love that our athletes get to have a different experience than your traditional all-star game. Um, Cause those, while they're fun, I think become more ceremonial than they do comp competition yeah. all the time. Yeah. That's a good point too. Of I didn't, of coming back to defend your title. Cause I was going to ask you, you know, again, it, and I get it. Recruiting is super important. And I know for, you know, right now it, it's such a big part um, of our, not necessarily in game, but that is, that's the goal for these players is, is they want to get recruited. So for right now, our 2025s that went last year, some of them have already verbaled, right? They've already made their commitment as of September 1st. So 
why come back? Right. And I could sit here and say, like, I saw the competition, you know, like a, an Elsa Morrison, her, I think her team was two and two, but she individually finished in the top four or Brooke Wells, who was a pitcher and hitter. And so she climbed up the leaderboard versus, I think in the one age group, the team DeMarini, because they were four and oh, they're, I think they had the top four kids, but I, I get excited thinking about that and thinking of taking the field with some of these great players and just for once getting to represent yourself out there too. And to get that experience of meeting these other kids, I might've just stole some of your answer because I get excited, but what would your message be to kids that number one, they're, they're committed and they're not going for recruiting purposes. Why should, why should they be a part of it? And then two, you know, why should I, why should I come back for a second year? Yeah, I think committed or not, you want to play against the best of the best. You like, I would look at it as where do you stack up against the top 60? If we truly at some point can get everyone buying in and the top 60 go, and let's, even if it's not the top 60, now you're talking the top 80, like somewhere, a jumble of that top, where do you stand? You know, do you come and do you finish towards the bottom? Do you come and finish middle of the pack? Um, if you win, like, obviously you're on the right track, but I think, you know, I had, um, Taylor Schumacher, she's committed to Florida. She didn't have no reason she had to come to this thing, but she came, she enjoyed it. And her individual play was great. My team wasn't the best. So we didn't win games like we could have or should have, I felt like, but um, maybe that's just the competitive in me being a coach too. But she also got to see that, you know what, even against all these other teams in, in an environment where it should be the best of the best, that she was good. Um, and you know, one of her other teammates, Brianna Townsend was on my team and she ended up being our defensive player for that age group. Um, but she did, she just stood over there at third base and made great plays. And, you know, some people might think they were your normal everyday run of the mill plays and they're not, but she's playing against the best of the best and still able to perform in that environment. Um, where, you know, it's kind of one of those, sometimes there's nothing to gain, everything to lose and everything to lose, nothing to gain. Like, and they took it as an opportunity to measure themselves against the best of the best. And why wouldn't you want to do that? Um, and you're getting an opportunity to go be around pro softball. Like, I think sometimes people take it for granted. Like, yes, I'm at the bar ballpark coaching my kids, but you get to go watch pro softball. You get to interact with those players, which is not something every sport gets to do. And then you get to mimic it. Um, like, you know, we had the pro athletes run practice. Like literally they learn from people who have been there, done that of what they want to do in their dreams. Um, and if you want to be a pro softball player, what better opportunity to go see what it's all about than, than take this opportunity and, and do it over and over. Just because you go once doesn't mean the experience is going to be the same the second time. Yeah. Um, you're going to probably interact with different athletes. You're going to see a different game, obviously. Um, so I think, you know, continue to measure yourself. Don't measure yourself once. And that's, that's your measurement. Like figure out, did I get better? Or did I say, if you stayed the same, like maybe that's a red flag of we need to push ourselves to figure out how to get better before we go to college. Um, the yardstick doesn't stay in one place once you commit. Like there's more and more to gain in every year prior to college. And then once you get there, you're expected to continue to grow your game. I think this is a good time to tell you about Pocket Radar and our partnership for Alliance members. Pocket Radar is the official radar technology partner of the Alliance Fast Pitch. Pocket Radar's technology is currently utilized by coaches at the highest levels of softball and by parents and players training in their backyards. They provide software and hardware solutions 
tailored for player development and recruiting. Pocket Radar's new app platform is a powerful tool for athletes looking to improve their game and have their metrics be seen by coaches across the country. We use Pocket Radar in all of our Stars of Tomorrow combines. And you know what's even better? Alliance coaches and families can get up to $150 off Pocket Radar Smart Coach and Training Bundle on our various buy days that we do with Pocket Radar. And every Alliance coach is eligible for that annual discount throughout the year. Learn more about our partnership with Pocket Radar and how you can receive an Alliance member discount by visiting our website, thealliancefastpitch.com, and clicking on Pocket Radar under the Partners tab. So true. So true. What do you think about, and I'm sitting here looking at the Olympic rings, but over your shoulder here, and obviously great news of back in 2028, even if the Stars of Tomorrow isn't officially part of the identification process, do you think this could help prepare a kid for what they'll experience of, of going through? I mean, you've somebody, you've been on the, the circuit and gone through the tryouts and different things. Do you think this could help in, in that process or even on the, on the identification process as we're all starting to prepare for 2028? Well, yeah, I think anytime you can go do something where eyes of, I say the elite, but the elite eyes in the game. I mean, you're going to talk about us, um, you know, on deck softball runs their camps, Derek Allister collects data, like all of that can be used and found by anyone. So USA softball doesn't just go like, you have to only come to this and that's the only thing that matters. Um, you know, women's national team members are invited to the pool based on college performance, um, based on professional performance. I mean, Gwen Svekas got invited after, I think it's four or five years of pro ball. Like she didn't get invited straight out of college. So eyes are always watching to try to figure out, okay, what athletes to add into the pool. And so I think anytime you can put yourself in a position to where, again, you're competing against an elite level competition and you're performing well at it, that's, that bodes well for you. And I think any athlete that can continue to do that, and obviously um, the junior national team has become more abundant as far as events go. I mean, you and I growing up, I think they had an event once every four years and you had to fall right in the age group or else, you know, you were kind of out of luck. And so now obviously the U15 team's been playing, um, a U18 team is about to get selected. You know, if you have, if you come to Stars of Tomorrow and finish first, I'm pretty sure that's going to grab some eyes. And then if your data comes along that shows your exit velo is elite, you know, your arm strength's elite, this, that, and the other, you might have an opportunity. It's, it's no different. I mean, Derek Allister has plenty. And it's like if an athlete registers high on his thing, I'm pretty sure someone on the committee is looking at his list saying, okay, can you send us the data on these kids compared to what we already have in our system? Um, and so I think anytime you can put yourself, again, measuring against the best, you're going to give yourself an opportunity to be able to be seen and be recognized and, um, you know, it's an ongoing process. I think that's the other thing with the national team that people um, forget is you have to try. I tried out 13 times. <laughs> I mean, wow. 13 different national team tryouts. Now, granted, they're, they're all run the same. So after you go through one or two, you get comfortable with it. But like you don't make the team and then just get selected because you've always been on the team. Like we all went through the same tryout, the same stuff. Everybody gets the same nerves all the time. Um, and so, you know, you because they want to see that you're continually progressing too. Like if, if I had gone to a tryout and I'll say like my 2019 tryout after I unretired, I knew I had to be in really, really good shape and I had to really be ready to throw. I couldn't show up showing that I could kind of throw. They didn't need me to kind of throw. I needed to show I'm ready to do this. Um, and so that's where I pushed myself as hard as I could. And 
you know, it was probably my, oh, honestly, it was the first, uh, no, it wasn't, the, but it was one of my better tryouts because I knew I had to prove that I could do it again. And so they want to see that. They want to see that when you come into tryouts, you're ready to prove you're one of the best in the world and you're not just showing up with, you know, the laurels wrapped around your neck. Speaking of tryouts, it's about to get a, a little bit more heated because we are back. Softball is back in the Olympics for 2028. When you first got the news and saw that that softball was back in, what, what was your immediate thought? I was so excited. I mean, I think obviously seeing how it went off in 2020, well, 2021, but the 2020 Olympics for Tokyo, um, so well embraced over there in Japan. I think the media loved that the sport was back. Um, it is a sport that, you know, other, to be honest, other than Europe, and there are select parts of Europe that love it. You know, you have Italy, Great Britain, Netherlands, um, that are all very invested in it. But other than that, it's, it's embraced all over the place. And so, um, personally, I think I was excited because yes, now the U S not only gets to be in the Olympics, but in LA, um, which is going to be pretty cool to play it here at home. Um, but the future too, is that Brisbane hosts it in 2032, which is in Australia. So there's a chance that we actually get to finally have back-to-back -back quads again with the same sport um, or being in as a sport. So LA was the first key. Um, the next will be for Australia to push to add it, to keep it in as well. Um, but, you know, it's a dream that is just, everyone deserves to have that dream hanging in front of them. And even if you don't necessarily accomplish it, it drives you every single day. But for the ones that do get to go, um, there's no better feeling than to be able to play on an Olympic stage with our sport. I mean, that is the ultimate stage that um, our sport can see. And so I'm um, super excited that another generation of athletes gets to experience that and continue to drive for that. What do you think it'll take for us to, to keep it, to keep the sport? And I know it's location obviously matters. Japan, US, Australia is important, but what else would it take to keep softball in the Olympics every four years? You know, now I think there's probably some guidelines some policies or something that we have to get to, to get back on the permanent docket. Um, so at least we're in the pool to where host sites can vote on it. Um, but, you know, I, I would love to say there's like X, Y, Z. I mean, we were told originally that we were out because of the dominance that the U S had. Well, Japan's won the last two medals. Um, then it wasn't global enough. Well, if you keep us in the Olympics, the Olympic committees obviously right. fund their sports differently. Um, so while right now globally, there's still govern or there's still teams, the funding is different. So they may not train as much, or they may not be able to get their best athletes because they can't pay or whatever it is. Um, but globally, it, it, it's still a very popular sport. I mean, again, we're talking about Japan, China, Taipei, Australia, New Zealand, um, South Africa used to send a team to world championships. Um, a good number of the South American and Central American countries play it. Um, at a, a good level, you know, us, Canada, like it's, it's global. Um, so I think the biggest thing is, you know, everyone wants to say we have to grow it in Europe and I think that would help, but I think it being recognized and followed, um, in the years that aren't Olympic years. So that way you see the competition probably is the biggest thing. And now thankfully with streaming and everything that can be seen, but I know back when I played, it was like, you get, no one saw world championships. No one saw Pan Ams. No one saw the random tournaments you know whether it was world cup or we went over to japan for a tournament like you didn't see those competitions and see how close they were you only saw every four years and in the olympic year the u.s team 
most of the time we are such a well-oiled machine that it, it looked easy, even though it wasn't, let's be real. Um, but that's what the perception was, was that it was just too easy. And it was like, well, no, this is four years of work put in with a lot of games in between that were closer, but the, the general population didn't follow those or didn't get to see those. That's interesting. What, what, what will it take to get back on the gold medal stand there? What, what is, how does the U S get back to defending the gold? You know, I think like anything it's both times we've lost it. We were right there. It's not like it was, uh, you know, one, one swing in the game could have been different. I mean, Amanda Chittister hits a line drive that ricochets off a third baseman and the shortstop can catch it in the air. How often do you really see that happen? Um, so there's so much that could have gone to switch it. But I think the biggest thing is just um, the one downfall of U.S. Olympic situation is we are not government funded at all. Um, Canada's government funded. China's government funded. Um, I don't really know, but I'm assuming Japan's probably government funded to a certain extent. We are all privately funded. And so our governing bodies are all on the hook for everything we need and can do to train and be prepared. And, um, you know, that's a lot financially for to fall on anybody's shoulders. And so, you know, there's things that could make training easier and better. Um, but do we have the funds to do that? And so I think, you know, for the U.S., everyone wants that national team situation comes around like we really have to be able to back it and help fund it um and, you know even if it's doing the 25 dollar turkey trot or cornhole tournament they had hosted like whatever they're hosting to try to generate funds for the national team that's going to help those athletes as individuals but also the team train get equipment things like that um because i will say i mean i thought we trained really really well in 04 and 08 even though 08 didn't go our way um and i thought we trained well for 2020 as well, but it was very similar to 04 and 08. And with technology and the way things have gone, I, looking back now, I feel like there should have been added aspects that we should have been able to implement. Um, but obviously, again, you talk about financial and COVID hit in the middle of that. And that was a whole nother beast that we had to deal with. So I just think there's, um, there's training aspects that it, it costs money and we have to be able to, to back the national team. Um, and allow that to happen. And, you know, I've been on the end where we didn't get paid. And then this last time we at least got paid monthly while we were playing with the national team. And that was a step in the right direction. Um, and you can say, well, don't pay the athlete money monthly and go buy the equipment or whatever. But I mean, I was 39 years old with a mortgage and a car and everything else. Like, you know, you can't necessarily sacrifice a job for that long too and, and play. So, you know, it's, it's all a, it's all a, a merry-go-round, but um, we all gotta get on it and, and support it. That's the stuff people don't know, right, Kat? They don't know the uh, the not as glamorous stuff behind being a professional softball player or a USA national team member. Um, yeah, there's a lot of that. Could probably be an entire entire conversation here. To wrap up this one, I like to end with uh, just a couple rapid fires. So, first thing that that comes to mind on on these questions. So, first one, I know you're a reader. Uh, or listening to what are you what are you reading right now or listening to um right now i am reading well for fun book is it's called christmas orphans um i have a family book club my mom and two aunts and so that's our pick there um personally i am reading a book called how are you really 
Um, it's, uh, it's very interesting um, diving into just kind of how when people ask you, how are you, how you answer the question and do you ever reflect on yourself? Like, how are you really versus just superficially? Um, and I'm enjoying that. So those are the two I'm reading at the moment. I like it. What uh, or who are some some pitching coaches out there that that you're following or that you still now that you are uh, on the coach side, uh, maybe you're reaching out and picking their brains? Yeah, I think um, Beth Tarina at LSU. Um, we always have good conversations about different aspects of pitching. Um, actually, Mike Bosch, when he was at Florida, actually, when he was at Syracuse and Florida, we talked quite a bit about pitching. Um, he's not in charge of pitching anymore at NC State, but I did see him last weekend and we got to have some conversations and actually missed those conversations with him because they're always thought provoking. And then um, you've mentioned having Riker on and I think I pick Riker's brain on the technology side and the data side more than anything, because like you said, I, I was raised without it. So um, trying to figure out how to implement that and how do we read that the best to our ability. Um, those three uh, talk with Christian Conrad, who's in Arizona now quite a bit. Um I was, he's an interesting one because he was my facilitator at AU that first year. And um, he was actually Jesse Warren's facilitator week one when she drafted me. And then he was mine week two. And just the way he approached scouting and matchups. And it was very impressive for someone who was young um, and someone, in my opinion, going into kind of a gauntlet with all these pro athletes and just not afraid to, to use his voice. Um, so him and I met there and I just really respect his opinion um, on things pitching. And um, so that's my, my handful. Um, I'm always open to talk pitching, um, you know, Tony Rico and, and his group with the range. Um, we have conversations a lot and I've done a video or two for them. Um, but I also like the topics and how they approach that. Um, if I had all the time in the world, I would try to recreate that down here um, for pitchers, but um, I really enjoy having conversations about pitching. So I'm always open. There you go. Of all the awards. So you've won championships and you've won awards. Is there a particular award that stands out the most to you and maybe a story behind that? It's cheesy, but the gold medal, um, is probably the one that stands out the most. And, you know, it's easy to say because it's the pinnacle of our sport, but I obviously, I also didn't play a ton. I mean, don't get me wrong. I pitched over there. I pitched our game against Japan, um, in pool play to get us the number one seed. But I wasn't our ace or anything like that. Um, but for me, that was the culmination of nine, 10 months of hard work with, you know, I was 21 at the time. We could stay, say still a kid, essentially. Um, but um, it was the first time that in a group setting, I was put to where, like, that's all we lived for was for the for the Olympic Games. And so whether we were together or not, you were training because we had times to hit when we came back. Um, when we were together, we were going through grueling practices, grueling strength and conditioning. You know, it was it was the first time for me that I was probably pushed to some limits. And um, I just felt like the gold medal was, yes, it was winning the Olympics, but it was also just the culmination of seeing a process go all the way through um, and obviously ending with the, the best result possible. But that process we had to go through, like that gold medal is just so rewarding because of that. Talk about, or what is your favorite part about being a mom? Oh, um, every day is a new adventure. <laughs> um, it is truly like one day she's crawling two steps and the next day she's crawling all around the house. Um, one day she's 
trying to eat everything. And the next day she's banging them together because she realizes they make sounds. So um, every day is truly an adventure. And I think um, the other piece is just watching the village that I have um, love on her. I mean, she's been to five states already, multiple ballparks and, you know, anybody and everybody wants to love on her. And I think that's the cool piece of the life that I've, I've woven up to this point is there will not ever be a day that that kid doesn't know um, somebody's looking out for her and, and someone somewhere loves her. I mean, we were in Colorado and I think my mom came, my mom's like, you didn't even need me because Howard Dobson from LSU was holding her and someone else came over and grabbed her. And then when Joey switched with my mom, Chelsea Spencer from Cal wanted to hold her. And oh gosh. so it was like all my friends that are coaching, you know, come get there. Coach Woodard at Texas State, she'll come over any second and be like, give me the baby and watch softball and carry my baby around the park. So um, that's been fun to see is just to see everybody love on her as well. What do you think you've learned the most about yourself in being a mom? Um, I have more patience than I think I realized. Um, I think my impatience is probably with myself more than it is with other people. Um, and then, you know, I know as an athlete, we know we can do hard things, but man, being a mom is a different beast. And when you look at a day and even if you don't have something incredibly hard to do, but you get through the day and you know, like your child is still thriving, you're still breathing. Some days you look at it and you're just like, okay, I'm made to do really hard things. Cause yeah, being a parent and especially a stay at home one, like, you know, I shouldn't say fully stay at home mom. I try to work while she's sleeping, but, um, it's hard. It's exhausting, but rewarding. And so, yeah, there are days that I look and I'm like, some, some days of training were not near as hard as parenting is. What's the first thing that comes to mind when I say, do you see yourself being a pitcher's mom? No. <laughs> I'm secretly praying that we go indoors and play volleyball. Um, but if she chooses softball, I really feel like she's going to pitch. So um, I don't want to be a pitcher's mom, but if it happens, it happens. Um, because I'm not going to let anyone else train her. So her and I are going to get real close if that's the route she goes. Is she favoring righty or lefty yet? You know, the Early on, it was lefty. Now it's kind of both. So maybe ambidextrous. We'll see. There you go. Um, I feel like she'll probably start to favor righty here soon. Um, but we'll see. I'm, I'm not going so far to tie the right hand behind her back yet. <laughs> That's funny. Um, what do you've obviously accomplished a, a ton as a as a player? What is Kat Osterman's legacy in this next phase? Of, of your role within the sport? I would love, I would love it to be one impacting and influencing athletes, whatever that looks like. Um, I really do like the personal relationship. So it's fun to be able to coach and um, help these athletes, even if it's only, as we mentioned, like stars of tomorrow final event, like that weekend, you know, yes, I'm, I'm the cheesy one that followed my athletes that were playing for me. Um, but I want to see what they go on to do. I spent a weekend with them that I felt like was, you know, we were together a lot. And so um, I like being able to, to get to know athletes on that route and, and be a cheerleader for them and, um, you know, establish those relationships. But I also want to see this game grow in a way that is going to help these athletes develop, not just give more opportunities to play, but like allow them to develop as people and athletes. So that way, when they do go to college, they're ready to be able to not get scared of the first 20 hour a week and not all of a sudden be hit like a ton of bricks when it comes to time management, everything that college throws at them. Um, because I think, you know, especially nowadays, there's just so many more layers to things that we need to prepare them 
and yes, there's a time for them to be kids, but there's time for us to be able to prepare them too. And so just want to continue to figure out how to help athletes develop and give them the opportunities for that development. For sure. Well, final question this is a little bit more of trivia, but uh, I can't even ask this with a straight face, but <laughs> Kat, who is the first player to ever hit a grand slam off of you in a game? The only grand slam I've ever given up is um, right here on this podcast, Jamie Lowprice. Yes. Listen, I'm just trying to gonna come up. <laughs> I saved it till the end, though. I was just trying, you know, to let people know, like one at bat in my life, I could actually hit. And she did. It went really far. I struck out like 59 times in the other 60 at bats. So we're we're good. You can, you can claim that you have that claim to fame forever. Cause I'm never getting back on a field. I don't know. That was going to be my last question. What are the odds that you suit up for the 2028 Olympics? Zero, zero percent chance. Not even like a little bit. No, like I said, I want to throw to like, see what the technology says. I don't want to throw to try to face batters again. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. We can give you a front row seat in the in the stands to yeah i am planning on figuring out how to buy tickets to that so well kat i appreciate you i know I, i've kept you uh from your your other meeting but really excited to um to work with you and, and to continue to impact the sport and definitely appreciate everything that that you do so thanks for joining us on the car ride home thanks for having me and uh yeah looking forward to doing some big things with you hey guys we hope you're enjoying the Car Ride Home podcast. Hopefully we're filling the air and making your car ride home a little bit more enjoyable. Please be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple, or YouTube, and leave us a review. If you have any special guest or request that you'd like to, to hear or have us bring a guest or a story onto the podcast, shoot us an email, info at the We'd love to hear from you.